On September 6, 1954, President Eisenhower announced the formation of a group intended to result in an international atomic pool for peaceful purposes. The countries agreeing to participate included the United States, Great Britain, France, Canada, Australia, and South Africa, but not Russia. Shows on television that night included Truth or Consequences, Mr. District Attorney, The Goldbergs, and the premiere of It's a Great Life, Dragnet starring Jack Webb, On the Waterfront starring Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint, Carl Malden, and Lee J. Cobb, and a re-release of Gone with the Wind were playing in American movie theaters. And the Fort Wayne Daisies lost 8-5 to the Kalamazoo Lassies. With the victory, Kalamazoo won the championship playoff series and the final championship in the history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. The league disbanded after the 1954 season. For the third consecutive year, Fort Wayne lost in the playoffs after having the most regular season wins in the AAG PBL. Where Have You Gone? Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. In our previous episode, I spent the day in Columbus and then started moving north toward Indiana and Michigan. The second day of my trip covered 228 miles from Marion in central Ohio across U.S. Route 30 and a portion of the Lincoln Highway into Fort Wayne, Indiana, and then north on Interstate 69 to Battle Creek, Michigan. Some of the specific stops I had planned included the Warren G. Harding Memorial in Marion, Hyde Brothers Booksellers in Fort Wayne, and Parkview Field in Fort Wayne for the minor league baseball game between the Fort Wayne Tin Caps and the Dayton Dragons. I knew I wanted to drive on the Lincoln Highway, and I knew I wanted to seek out the site of a historic baseball game in Fort Wayne. Before we get too far away from Columbus, I want to revisit Bob Hunter and his book, Players, Teams, and Stadium Ghosts. Last time I mentioned two articles that drew me to purchase the book. I talked about his piece on the final game at Cooper Stadium, but not the one about the first game at Huntington Park in 2009. He noted that Bob Feller was on hand, as was Harold Cooper. Hunter wrote about the history that was brought over from Cooper Stadium to Huntington Park, He noted that the new park felt older than the oft-remodeled old park. Huntington Park is among a new generation of minor league ballparks in downtowns of mid-sized cities like Columbus, Fort Wayne, Charlotte, Omaha, El Paso, Birmingham, Alabama, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, to name some. There are two other books by Bob Hunter that I want you to know about. One is Thurberville published in 2017 by Trillium, an imprint of the Ohio State University Press. It's about Thurber's Columbus, Ohio, in fact and fiction. There's a chapter about the creation of Thurber House, a chapter about Thurber's grave at Greenlawn Cemetery, and bits and pieces about the stage production of a Thurber carnival. The other is a historical guidebook to Old Columbus, published in 2012 by Ohio University Press. 
It's loaded with information about Columbus history. With that, I'll put Columbus behind us and look at a couple notable attractions in Marion, Ohio, and in between Marion and Fort Wayne, Indiana, in a moment. We hope you're enjoying this second season episode of Where Have You Gone? If you've missed any of our previous episodes, fear not. We don't throw away anything. Our first season consisted of 13 episodes about 12 people in one place, plus a 14th episode recapping the first season. Seek them out at your favorite podcast sources or our website, whygpodcast.com. Before I started on this latest adventure, I stopped at one of our local AAA offices, the American Automobile Association, to pick up tour books for Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. I was disappointed to learn that the tour books are being phased out. The information will be available online, but no longer as a printed guide. Much of the tourist information in the tour books can be found in other places, but I still find them useful. When I woke up in Marion, I checked the city's listing in the Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia guide. The description included a paragraph about John Eberson's Marion Palace Theater, opened in 1928 and still a focal point of downtown Marion today at 276 West Center Street. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. Eberson's name rang a bell. He was known for designing movie palaces in the atmospheric theater style. Everson reportedly designed more than 100 of these theaters during the 1920s. It looks like there may be 17 of them still in operation today. The tour book has entries for the Warren G. Harding home and the memorial. With the COVID-19 and time considerations, I did not visit the home, but I did drive over to the memorial at the corner of Delaware Avenue and Vernon Heights Boulevard. It's an impressive circular outdoor memorial and the final resting place of President Harding and Mrs. Harding. Planning and fundraising for the memorial began soon after President Harding's death in 1923. It was officially dedicated by President Herbert Hoover in 1931. At one time, the Lincoln Highway went through Marion and continued west and north through Lima and on to Fort Wayne. Again, with time as a factor... I drove up U.S. Route 23 to U.S. Route 30, drove around Upper Sandusky, and about 80 miles in total before getting off U.S. 30 at Delphos. Somewhere between Marion and Delphos, I zeroed in on the Van Dell Drive-In. The Van Dell Drive-In, operating since 1948, is midway between the Ohio cities of Delphos and Van Wert at 19986 Lincoln Highway in Middle Point, Ohio. After taking some pictures, I drove another 8.2 miles on the Lincoln Highway into Van Wert. Just past the center of town, I stopped when another Ohio historical marker caught my eye. This one was for the Brumbach Library. According to the marker, the Brumbach Library was established at the outset of the county library system in Ohio and the entire United States near the end of the 19th century. 
John Sanford Brumback, a local banker and businessman, left a large bequest to Van Wert County for the purpose of establishing a county-wide library. Within a few years, an appropriate building took shape, and the Brumback Library was dedicated in 1901. The library was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1979. The sign in front of the library says the Brumback Library, established 1901, first county library in the United States. Directly across the street from the library is a large informational sign titled the Historic Lincoln Highway, first transcontinental U.S. highway. It presents information about the highway, photos, and reproduced newspaper clippings about the highway in Van Wert. The sign notes that it was in 1968 that Interstate 30 was built in Van Wert County. The Brumbach Library is just 35 miles from the award-winning Hyde Brothers Booksellers, opened in 1992. Located at 1428 Wells Street in Fort Wayne, it has a fondness for the odd and obscure. It's been called a gem for those who cherish reading on paper. It has also been called Indiana's best-loved bookstore. Hyde Park Books is in the Bloomingdale area of Fort Wayne, north of downtown across the St. Mary's River. By my experience, bookstores like Hyde Brothers tend to have good sections of books of literary criticism, books about books, and books about authors. In the section of books about books at Hyde Brothers, I came across two books and a pamphlet written by Robert B. Downs, D-O-W-N-S. I knew nothing about him. Later, I checked his Wikipedia biography, and the first thing I noticed was that he was born in Lenoir, North Carolina. I visited Lenoir on the same trip Maria and I visited Riverside Cemetery. For a time, Downs lived in Asheville. Later still, he was assistant librarian at New York Public Library, 1929-31, and director of libraries at New York University, 1938 to 43. He was then professor of library science, 1943 to 58, and dean library administration, 1958 to 71, at the University of Illinois. He died in 1991 in Urbana, Illinois, at age 87. What is it about these books that appeals to me? They were published only a year apart in 1970 and 1971. The titles are similar. The first is Books That Changed America, and the second is Famous American Books. They're from two different publishers, Macmillan and McGraw-Hill. In the introduction of each book, Downs references Marshall McLuhan as a, quote, denigrator of books, unquote. These denigrators of books, according to Downs, quote, would have us believe that books are obsolescent, being rapidly superseded by the newer media, unquote. Needless to say, Downs argued the point persuasively. Ultimately, it was the table of contents of each book that sparked my interest. In the first book, Downs writes about Thomas Paine's Common Sense, History of the Expedition by Lewis and Clark, The Shame of the Cities by Lincoln Steffens, The Jungle by Upton St. Clair, 
H.L. Mencken's Prejudices, Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma, and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, among 25 works. The 50 books Downs discusses in famous American books range chronologically from 1505 to 1968. Some of the books from 1920 forward were enough to sell me, including Main Street by Sinclair Lewis, Frank Lloyd Wright's Autobiography of 1932, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, Wendell Wilkie's One World, John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage, and Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed. The two books combined are 657 pages. The pamphlet is just 20 pages. Titled Books in My Life, it was published in 1985 by the Library of Congress and its Center for the Book. The center was established by law in 1977 to focus national attention on the importance of books, reading, and the written word. The pamphlet is a good look at the books in Downs's life. Who knows to what extent I'll agree or disagree with Downs's observations. I'm satisfied that reading what Downs had to say will be worth the time and effort. My next stop was the Visit Fort Wayne Visitors Center at 927 South Harrison Street in downtown Fort Wayne. I love these places. They're usually loaded with a wide variety of printed information that I find interesting and often useful. Usually I wind up with far more options than I have time for, regardless of how much time I have in that place. In the back of my mind, I suspect that I have the notion of returning again with no time limit, so I can do things like the Northern Indiana Beer Trail, load up on cookies at the Cookie Cottage, see all 40 of the historic structures listed in historic downtown Fort Wayne, including number 34 at 121 West Jefferson Boulevard, the Embassy Theater slash Indiana Hotel, architects A.M. Strauss and John Eberson. If you like, there's a briefer 18-stop Fort Wayne walking tour that includes the Embassy Theater, the city building from 1893, now home to the History Center and Allen County Fort Wayne Historical Society, the Fort Wayne Art Museum, the Allen County Courthouse, the Allen County Public Library, and Parkview Field, home to Tin Caps Baseball. I also found information about the Indiana Lincoln Highway Association, and the National Lincoln Highway Association. The Visitor's Center is a control station for the Lincoln Highway. Back in the days before GPS, or even good maps, the Lincoln Highway Association published guides to the road between 1915 and 1924. These guides highlighted control stations along the road where drivers could get their bearings and ask for directions. Stopping to ask for help can still be a good strategy even in the 21st century. In all fairness, though, my iPhone and GPS probably made the difference between my finding Camp Allen Park and not finding it. According to the sign at the entrance, Camp Allen Park was established in 1912 and is part of Fort Wayne Parks and Recreation. There's also a marker erected by the Indiana Civil War Centennial Commission, dated 1962, Honoring Camp Allen, 1861-64, Civil War Mustering in Camp. Colonel Hugh B. Reed was its first commandant. The 30th, 
44th, 74th, 88th, and 100th Indiana regiments and the 11th Indiana Battery were organized there. I wasn't there for the small, quiet playground or the Civil War history. I was there for the history made there when it was the Kikianga Ball Grounds 1869 to 1871, a marker placed at the site in 2017 by the Tin Caps, Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, NEBA, the Northeast Indiana Baseball Association, Huntington Vintage Baseball, the many friends of Kikianga Baseball, David J. Stalker and Archie Monuments, tells the story of the game of May 4, 1871, between the Cleveland and Kekianga teams of the National Association. In brief, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players of 1871 to 1875 was baseball's first major league, and the contest between Cleveland and Fort Wayne on May 4, 1871 was its first game thus the first Major League Baseball game in history. Fort Wayne defeated Cleveland 2 to nothing. The grandstands at the Kekianga Ball Grounds were destroyed by a fire on November 5, 1871, and never rebuilt. It was getting to be game time, and so I made my way to Parkview Field, opened on April 16, 2009. The architect was HOK Associates. The ballpark is surrounded by two hotels in the outfield. There's also a parking garage and residential apartments with ground floor retail and restaurants. At the top of each lower deck section from first base to third base are pictures and text related to Fort Wayne baseball history, such as the Daisies, the Kekiangas, the Fort Wayne Generals of 1948, and the Fort Wayne Wizards of 1993-2008. to 2008. When the games were over, Fort Wayne won the first game, a continuation of the game suspended from the previous day. Dayton won the regularly scheduled game. A loud and colorful fireworks display followed as I walked back to the car and made the drive 102 miles north on Interstate 69 out of Indiana into Michigan to my destination of Battle Creek. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Earlier, I spoke of John Everson and his theaters still in use today. He designed the Colony Theater at Shaker Square, now Shaker Square Theaters, right at the eastern edge of Cleveland where it meets Shaker Heights. The theater is much different now than when it was a single-screen theater. It's been a multiplex for many years. Everson also designed the Akron Civic Theater and the Palace Theater in Canton. Years ago, I was in the Louisville Palace, a particular Everson gem. 
in downtown Louisville. It's now owned by Live Nation. There's a similar story, it seems, to many of these theaters. It goes something like, In the late 1960s or early 1970s, the theater was poised for the wrecking ball when someone stepped in and saved it. That deserves its own story, but perhaps more about that another time. There's an aspect of Fort Wayne I have not talked about yet. His name is John Chapman, better known as Johnny Appleseed. He was born in Leominster, Massachusetts in 1774. He died in Fort Wayne in 1845. It's accepted that he's buried in Fort Wayne, but the exact place of his burial is disputed. He's been described as eccentric. He's among the best known of American legends, the subject of books, statues, museums, and festivals. If you know the Johnny Appleseed story, you've already caught on that Tin Caps is in his honor. He was known for wearing his tin cooking pot upon his head. The team logo is an apple wearing a tin cap. The team's mascot is Johnny Tin Cap. And according to the team website, Johnny's interests include, but aren't limited to, Tin Caps baseball, apples, birthday parties, planting apple trees in the grass at Parkview Field, parades, and Arbor Day. Johnny's short list of dislikes includes loggers, worms, and the off-season. And if you know the story of Johnny Appleseed, perhaps you also know the story of General Mad Anthony Wayne. According to the AAA tour book, the region at the confluence of three rivers was originally inhabited by the Miami Indians. The area was later named for the renowned Revolutionary War figure, General Mad Anthony Wayne, after he made peace with the Native Americans. With that, it's on to the most magical part of my trip. That's next time on Where Have You Gone? I'm Morris Eckhouse host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company, 